Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Matt, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Would you like to reintroduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Sure, Ravi. My name is uh, Matt Ehrlich. I'm a professor emeritus of journalism at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Now, I invited you back on here because we want to discuss another one of your books. Actually, probably two of your books that you got. You got Heroes and Scoundrels about journalism, and then you got the journalism and movies. So it's going to be a journalism-themed podcast, but I wanted to get your definition of what journalism is. Well, to me, journalism is, um, you know, the gathering and um, and sharing of stories and information that we need to govern ourselves and to try to make sense of our lives. So it's uh, it's an important mission that ideally journalism tries to fulfill in our society and our culture. Where do you think people get the most impact from journalism? Like what medium? What medium? Well, Probably anymore, if you can consider online a medium in and of itself. I mean, you know, I've, 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 even though I'm retired from full time teaching, I still teach occasionally, and I've been in, involved uh, in journalism as uh, both a practitioner, professional journalist, and as a journalism educator for I don't know forty some odd years now. And um, I have to admit that I no longer subscribe to any print publication other than one magazine. I don't subscribe to a daily print newspaper because I get all that stuff online now. Um, I subscribe to newspapers, but purely as a digital product. So I think that's probably a common experience for a lot of people now, even people of my generation and certainly younger generations, too. So whereas when I was growing up, you know, my family, like a lot of families, had a, two daily newspapers, a morning paper and an afternoon paper. We'd sit around the, the dinner table and swap sections of the newspaper. So it was still an analog ink and paper product. And now anymore, people are just getting the news on their phones and computer screens. And so um, really, it's not just journalism per se, it's media generally is being consumed digital, digitally. Do you believe that journalism still holds the high regard it did maybe in the past? I mean, I, 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 well, analyzing it from a historical standpoint, from like the Kennedy stuff and looking more in the 60s since that Watergate, a big thing that happened, there's a different impact I get. Like I see a lot of my friends now calling themselves like journalists because they wrote a book about whatever. And it's just like, maybe, but I, to me, the journalism was like Walter Cronkite people that everyone turned turned on the television for, specifically for that person, because they were someone that was going to dig into a story and get the answers that they need. Mm -hmm. Well, if you look at public opinion polls that have been conducted over the years, uh, usually the answer to your question is, is no, journalism is not respected as much as it once was, although, you know, it's like anything else. Um, we can exaggerate how much journalism has ever been respected um, by certain sectors of the public. Um, it's like saying um, uh, other looking at other institutions, other professions, there's always been a public ambivalence toward, for example, organized medicine or the law or certainly government. And the same has been true of journalism. There's always been a certain level of public mistrust toward journalists and toward the press. And that's been reflected in popular culture dating back to the, to the late 19th century. 
Um, but in today's world, the 2020s, um, we definitely do see um, a, a significant amount of uh, mistrust in terms of uh, what people consume in the news. Uh, we see a lot more fragmentation in the news landscape. We don't have the equivalent of a Walter Cronkite anymore um, or the influence wielded by the major newspapers and major news weeklies anymore. Uh, there's both a good side and a, and a bad side to that. Um, it's just different today. And um, the implications of that are sobering. What about the popular culture reflections of the late 19th century you mentioned? How were reporters or how were journalists represented? Well, we talk about the rise of modern journalism dating back to um, roughly the 1880s and 1890s, called modern journalism because that's the era in which the um, the occupational roles in the newsroom that have continued to this day, uh, the, the role of the reporter who goes out of the newsroom to gather news and bring it back to a centralized newsroom, the role of the editor who decides, uh, who, who helps shape the, the stories that actually get published and printed, uh, those occupational roles were defined at about that time. Uh, the modern uh, news technologies, the, the, the telegraph being used uh, and electronic technologies to help uh, the worldwide transmission of news through things like the Associated Press, and modern printing presses and uh, the telephone that was uh, a news gathering tool. All those sorts of things were established um, starting toward the end of the 19th century and, and mass circulation newspapers. Um, and with that, uh, we see the rise of mass popular culture as well. Starting in the late 19th century, we start seeing novels about journalism. And then in the early 20th century, when movies um, start to be produced, we see silent movies about journalism. And then in the 1920s, toward the end of that decade, sound movies about journalism. And we see um, this mixed portrayal about news being represented as very fast-paced, exciting, journalists acting as detectives, going out, breaking big stories that nobody else has gotten. But we also see concerns about uh, the tabloidization of news, about sensationalism in news. Um, you know, the late 19th century, um, right before uh, the turn of the century, uh, was when the Spanish-American War happened and the rise of yellow journalism, um, concerns about the role of the press in, um, in um, perhaps um, egging on the United States into a war that it really didn't need. Um, and those sorts of critiques that were happening in the real world uh, bled over into popular culture as well. Journalism has never been an occupation where you get rich, at least not early on. There are a few journalists who are later in their careers if they have very high-profile jobs. Uh, the Walter Cronkites of the world, the, the people who rose up to be really prominent national journalists, uh, could make a good deal of money. But for most other journalists, rank-and-file journalists, it was a real um, hand-to-mouth existence in a lot of cases. And so you see a lot of novels and movies um, in the early decades of the 20th century 
um, talking about how awful newsroom conditions were, um, how awful the everyday existence of a journalist was. And interestingly enough, a lot of those novels and some of those screenplays were written by former journalists who knew what they were talking about. And they were sort of uh, using pop culture as a way of uh, making sense of the unhappy existence that they had led as journalists. So the, the negative public perceptions of journalists that we have today, the negative pop culture portrayals of journalism that we often see today have ample historical precedent. When was the peak for popular culture representing journalism in a good way? In a good way? Um, or has it always been a criticism? I, I, I think it's always been mixed. Okay. You know, you mentioned one of the books that um, I, I've written on this. Uh, it's a book that I actually co-authored uh, by a professor at USC in Los Angeles, Joe Saltman, called Heroes and Scoundrels. And we called the book Heroes and Scoundrels because that two-sided portrayal of the journalist as hero and the journalist as scoundrel goes back a long way. And you can look, for example, at one of the most influential portrayals of journalism, um, which is the front page that was initially a, a Broadway play, which was first produced in 1928. And then it became a movie in 1931 that was remade in 1940 as a really well-known movie, His Girl Friday with Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell. And then remade again by Billy Wilder, the director in 1974 with Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau. And then remade again in 1988, um, movie called Switching Channels with Burt Reynolds and Christopher Reeve, Kathleen Turner. And it's still um, being remade, although not necessarily under that name, to this present day. And from the initial production of the front page in the 1920s, you see journalists doing really sleazy, horrible sorts of things, uh, driving a woman to jump out a window, um, planting uh, really nasty stories about people, and still saving the day at the end. And that was a play that was co-written again by two ex-journalists, uh, Ben Hecht and Charles MacArthur. So in a work like The Front Page, you see the journalists as heroes and as scoundrels at the same time. And you see that throughout. You know, you asked, um, are there particular eras in which journalists were more heroic, more celebrated? A lot of people would point to the 1970s and all the president's men, which portray the real life Woodward and Bernstein and their roles in exposing Watergate. But that came out in 1976, which was the same year that Network came out with uh, Peter Finch um, playing a, a, an insane newsman screaming into the TV cameras, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. And uh, then his boss is arranging to have him assassinated on live television. So it's, it's just always been a mixed portrayal all throughout the years, this hero and scoundrel dichotomy. When do you think the divide really happened where people, I mean, when we talk about criticism of just journalists or the idea of journalists. I mean, when do you think that really people started doubting? Like, there's never been this much of a public awareness that everything's kind of like in the pocket of big business. 
Um, I thought that was always a conspiracy theory. Like even talking about it, I believed it, but so many people would just be like, oh, that's a conspiracy. Not all media is captured. It's like, and I think we're all pretty aware now that there's business interests in certain stories and certain things that they can't report on. Um, like you were mentioning before, it's just how the sausage gets made. Some people that openly speak about it and then you believe them because they're a Washington Post reporter or their New York Times or whoever, they're kind of swayed to like, hey, we don't want you reporting on that story because it's going to mess up this deal that we have going on with this company. And if you like your job and you like feeding your family, then it's probably best not to report on that story. It's strictly business. It's not conspiratorial. It's not that we're trying to block you and there's whatever. It's just this is how this goes and this is where we get our money and you can't mess with our money. There's never been that much of an awareness at least when I was a kid, there was never an awareness of that around. I don't think my parents ever talked about media being captured. I think they all had their own stations that they watched. And I don't know when it started. Well, um, I would argue that that kind of uh, critical portrayal, explicitly, openly critical portrayal of business interests shaping the news um, dates back again, at least to the early 1930s and probably before then, um, there is a movie called Five Star Final. Uh, the name came from the fact that newspapers back in the day printed multiple editions, and the Five Star Final would be the uh, the final um, uh, take on the news on, a, on any given day for a newspaper. And Five Star Final was written by a one-time tabloid journalist. It was an, originally a Broadway play, then made into a movie that came out in 1931. And it shows um, uh, the publisher urging on the newspaper to publish the most sensational news possible to maintain circulation, um, because circulation in those days was money. If your circulation went down, um, your advertising went down, and um, you would no longer be able to compete, so that the, the argument went, you'd no longer be able to compete in the marketplace. And so what this tabloid newspaper does in Five Star Final is it dredges up this 20-year-old story about a woman who uh, murdered her lover after he got her pregnant and refused to marry her. The tabloid dredges up this story, um, and that story drives the woman and her husband to suicide. Um, and this is portrayed very explicitly. It, it was an era in Hollywood, which is sometimes referred to as pre-code Hollywood, because the production code was not being enforced um, rigorously. That happened later in the 1930s. And so you see a lot of movies of the very first part of the 1930s that are quite explicit about sex and violence and um, other sorts of adult themes. Um, so it's as anti-press a film as you'll see anywhere. And it came out over 90 years ago. Um, you can continue to see portrayals like that. I mentioned Network. Uh, Network came out in 1976, so it's uh, almost 50 years old now, um, which is a little hard to believe. But that movie, as I indicated, shows business pressures 
um, driving uh, business executives, evil business executives, evil news executives to have a person assassinated on live television. Um, more recently, although still we're talking about a quarter century ago now, uh, the movie The Insider, which came out in 1999, um, it shows exactly the scenario that you were mentioning. Um, and it's a real-life example. Um, 60 Minutes, the news magazine on CBS, had a story about a tobacco company whistleblower named Jeffrey Wigand. And they uh, were ordered by the network to suppress that story, to not... Uh, broadcast the segment, the interview with this tobacco company whistleblower in its entirety because of fears that the story might derail a merger between CBS and Westinghouse at that time. Um, and that led to a big blow up in, in 60 Minutes that The Insider, a Michael Mann film, uh, portrays uh, very explicitly. So, you know, the American news model has always been built on private enterprise. It's always been built on the notion that you can have private enterprise and public service coexist comfortably, and that, in fact, private enterprise is preferable to government subsidy of the news, state subsidy of the news, uh, because then the news, in theory, will be free from external pressures, at least external state pressures. Uh, but the news has never been free of external commercial pressures, and that always has been a theme in pop culture, the negative impact of commercial pressures. Now, did you examine, when you were examining this, did you have the same perspective that you have now going into it? Did you understand how far back this dates? Did you understand that there was this kind of, I mean, I'm sure you must have known that uh, the news media is kind of all garbage or they all have their biases anyway. Like, I think I have that perspective. But then going in and being able to do the research that you've done, you've kind of seen that this has kind of always been like this, or there's always been forms of this. I mean, you mentioned our newest or newer film, 1990, I think you said 99, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Nightcrawler is the one I can think of with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, just because, I mean, if you really look at press, it all boils down to ethics. And sadly, I think the ethics has gone from the institution or the network to now boiling down to the individual person. I mean, with the media, we have so many independent journalists now. Anybody who has a sub stack or can write a blog can technically be a journalist, but then it boils down to what do they want to include in a story and what they don't. But when you start creating scenarios where you can get a story, that's when it starts scaring me. And I think it puts people like... We talk about truth seekers as journalism. That's not what this is. This is kind of more like whatever truth they only want to see. And that becomes very difficult. Yeah. Nightcrawler, by the way, is a great movie. Um, but, you know, there are a number of things, and I'll, I'll try to hit on, on each of them that you raised. But since you did mention Nightcrawler, Nightcrawler came out, I think, 2014 which was about the same time that Spotlight came out and Spotlight won the Best Picture Oscar. And that uh, shows uh, a number of things. It shows the contrast in popular culture between the, hero the more heroic view of journalism that Spotlight represents and the more villainous, scoundrel-like portrayal of journalism that Nightcrawler represents. It shows, uh, and, and, you know, I'm, I've worked as a journalist and I have been a journalism educator. So I take exception to the notion that 
everyone is a journalist. Everyone can play, every, everyone can um, um, gather news, um, transmit news. Uh, the fact that we do have digital technologies now um, gives a lot more opportunities for people who in the past would not have the opportunities to make their viewpoints known. And this is a good thing. Uh, journalism ideally should be a very democratic um, practice that um, citizens can't partake in, but still really good journalism uh, does have certain distinguishing factors and ethics is one of them, both at an individual level and an uh, organizational level. Um, and Spotlight, which is based on a real life example, the Boston Globe exposing um, the abuse within the Catholic Church that was taking place in Boston at that time and elsewhere, uh, sexual abuse uh, being committed by uh, certain priests shows that, you know, that there is quality ethical journalism that has been practiced recently in this country and um, I believe is still being practiced in this country. Um, so, yeah, th th that's, that's, that's one thing that's important to recognize, whereas Nightcrawler shows a very different portrait by someone with very different motivations um, and the more um, evil side of journalism uh, when it's uh, debased um, and, and in its worst form. Um, when did I first become aware of this? I think when I first started studying the subject, which would have been probably about 25 years ago, um, I think I had the view that a lot of people who have worked around journalism have had, which is that uh, sort of like we were saying at the outset, that the portrayal of journalism now is much worse than it was once upon a time. So I was kind of expecting that when I would go back and look at stuff from the 20s and 30s and 40s, that it would be much more positive, much more honorable. And I didn't find that. I found this more mixed portrayal going back um, way back into, as I said, even toward the end of the 19th century. And that was a little bit of a surprise. That was something that I did not necessarily expect to find going into the project. So when you mentioned uh when we talk about the more glorification like reporting on an actual story that actually can do some good do you not see that as getting suppressed i don't really see a whole lot of stories that are really doing good in a sense i mean there's a few journalists out there but they're very independent they are, cannot be published by uh you know they either end up writing a book or something they get published by a publisher it seems like the publishing companies of like books um, are actually able to get the word out more than an actual news network that wants to publish a story. It seems like everything's trending. I mean, they had a no offense to the influencer, whoever it was, Gabby Batito, around the time that there was all the Epstein stuff was going on. She was missing for like five months, and I've never heard of her before, but apparently the media was just obsessed. And then she just went away. Nobody talked about it anymore, just disappeared, and we were on to something else. Where I didn't know what that was, but I I don't the the things they pick and choose doesn't make sense to me. When we have real crimes going on, you mentioned the church thing, that still gets suppressed. Try googling some of that stuff. You might hear some scandals or some things, but everything's kind of iffy. There's not a conclusive evidence, or there's not a punishment, or there's not a court proceeding. There's none of that. Mm -hmm. And there is historical precedent for that. You know. Um... 
the, the really famous book about journalism that was written a long, long time ago by Walter Lippmann, uh, Public Opinion, and he compared the news of that era, the early 20th century, to um, a searchlight that just casts light on certain things, but then moves its light to something else, and then everything goes back in the dark, just the way it did before. And that is something that's always been endemic to a lot of journalism. It's hard to cast uh, the sustained light on systemic injustice, systemic abuses. Um, that's something that is definitely lacking in today's news media, um, but it's always been lacking in the news media. Um, and sometimes it is uh, consciously suppressed. Sometimes it's a result of the fact that um, there are fewer um, trained journalists working now because the business model of journalism that has been in place for so long um, no longer seems to work. Um, you know, this the, the model of private enterprise where news is um, is backed by circulation or subscription, paying subscribers, people who actually plunk down money to uh, buy the newspaper or um, to um, listen to the, to the public radio station, whatever. Um, that model or the model of commercial subscriptions has gone down and advertising has gone down because advertisers no longer uh, find it worthwhile in a lot of cases to shell out money to uh, take out ads in a print publication for reasons we talked about before. People just aren't turning to print products as much as they used to. So the whole model of how to pay for quality journalism is very much up in the air right now. There is, and I do firmly believe this, there is still quality journalism being done that does do a good public service and that does get necessary stories out, but you have to hunt for it. And it can be a very uh, scattershot sort of thing where it's a really good investigation done by this podcast, uh, but then it's going to be several months before the next good investigation because they have to uh, kind of reload and restart again. And in the meantime, uh, they might not have the necessary funding to do all the reporting that they want. So, I mean, yeah, you do point to a lot of problems. There are stories that if they are not necessarily being actively suppressed, whereby some powerful entity is saying, you will not publish this or you will not put this online, a lot of times it's simply because uh, nobody has the money or inclination to go out and find that, that kind of story. Um, and that that is worrying. That is troubles, troubling. What about the labeling of things like conspiracy on certain stories? Like uh, if you've ever looked into the death of Dag Hammarskjöld, it's been investigated by the UN like at least 13 times. The last time they did it was in 2019. And they've I think the official conclusion was that they couldn't rule out it being an assassination. 
um, on the basis of J. Edgar Hoover's reputation had diminished from the time they concluded their last invest investigation, where there could have been something wrong with his altimeters could have been messed with. I don't know if you know who Dag Hammarskjöld is, but yeah, I, I do know who he is. I haven't, and I remember, I believe he died in a plane crash. Was... Yeah, and they found an ace of spades in his collar of his. You can look at the photo and see it and everything. So that's verifiably proof. But if you talk about it being an assassination attempt, which we know the government had done in the past. People would say that's conspiracy. Well, I had a New York Post person on my show whose New York Post wouldn't publish it, but he wrote a book about it. Um, his name's uh, Raj something. Uh, sorry if I'm blank. I'll have to look up his name and add it in later. But um, he wrote a book about it and started telling me no, nobody would. They had this sitting in their archives. That's where I found it. They didn't care about publishing the story because it's called conspiracy or controversial. And I'm like, why does that does that diminish the capacities for people's wantingness to look for truth as a journalist? Well, it, it's very easy to dismiss certain stories as being conspiratorial. Uh, and, and, you know, that's a very pejorative, very negative label. Oh, you're just a conspiracist. That's just conspiracy thinking. Therefore, it doesn't matter. There are real life conspiracies, right? On the other hand, not everything is a conspiracy. <laughs> so that's that's the dilemma. You have to try to sift through what really is a conspiracy and how high a conspiracy. I mean, I don't know what what I don't know what necessarily qualifies as a conspiracy. Um, I've read a little bit, for example, and and I am no expert in in the murder of Martin Luther King, but I know that um, there are a number of conspiracy theories about um, who actually was behind his killing, how high up that conspiracy went. I've heard talk that the conspiracies behind uh, King's assassination went way up into the United States government. And we do know that the FBI was conducting really nasty Co and tell pro. Huh? Co and was the murder of Fred Hampton. They were looking for a black messiah. I mean, they faked uh, Martin Luther King's suicide note. Um, J. Edgar Hoover did. That's actually in the FBI. And that was Jeffrey Haas from the People's Law Office, who is a good friend. He's been on the show a couple of times, but done great work in the Fred Hampton assassination. They exposed that. But that's like you couldn't even I couldn't even create that out of my head. You could be the most creative writer in the world, but you find out it's true and they did something like that. You're like, what were you guys thinking? Yeah. And then the, the, the things that I have read, it said, OK, um, James Earl Ray, um, probably, again, I'm not an expert in this, and I'm sure there may be people who listen to us talking about will say, oh, what he's saying is totally wrong about King. I, I'm, I'm not making any definitive statements, but to me, it sounds somewhat more like James Earl Ray probably was involved. Um, and there may have been a conspiracy, you know, someone might have hired him to um, to shoot King. How high up that conspiracy went, maybe it was much more smaller conspiracy. Not as many people were involved as other people say. At this late date, all these decades later, it may be very hard ever to get any definitive answers. But point being that, yeah, there very well may have been a conspiracy behind Martin Luther King's assassination. 
It may not have been James Earl Ray just suddenly deciding by himself he's going to stalk King and take him out. Was it necessarily this massive high-level conspiracy that involved multiple government agencies? I, I tend to think not, but um, and then that's part of the issue. You know, to briefly bring it back to the uh, to the uh, theme of journalism in the movies. All the President's Men and Watergate. Um, all, all the President's Men is the story of Woodward and Bernstein trying to uncover the conspiracy uh, behind uh, Watergate. And there was a conspiracy in terms of Nixon White House officials um, uh, having undertaken a campaign of surveillance of uh, Nixon's political opponents and the Democrats. Um, and um, then a cover-up in the Nixon White House of uh, what they had been doing, their surveillance campaigns. If you watch the movie, you see Bob Woodward going to the parking garage and meeting with Deep Throat on multiple occasions. Deep Throat was not identified by name in the film other than Deep Throat because it was not revealed until many years later that it was Mark Felt, the number two guy in the FBI, I believe it's more than one guy. I'm sorry. That one's a little bit. Iffy. Well, that, there you go. Right. Okay. Uh, was Deep Throat actually a composite? Was he something that was made up for dramatic effect uh, by Woodward and Bernstein to make a better book? Because that movie was based on a book. A lot of people over the years have made exactly their argument that you have. There was no one guy named Deep Throat. He might have been a composite of many different people. Bob Woodward has written a book where he says, yeah, it was just one guy, and it was Mark Felt, the number two guy at the FBI. And the reason Felt, although it's hard to tell exactly what might have motivated Felt, might have been that he was passed over because for the number one position um, after J. Edgar Hoover died, and Felt really thought that he was going to be the next head of the FBI, and he got passed over by Nixon. So maybe he was mad about that. Uh, maybe he was genuinely concerned about what was happening and how the FBI's investigation was being curtailed. Um, regardless, the movie suggests that it was just one guy, one guy named Deep Throat. And at one point toward the end, Deep Throat tells Woodward, your lives are in danger. Um, and then there's a scene where Woodward rushes back, meets with Carl Bernstein, uh, Woodward puts his finger to his mouth, turns classical music up really loud on the radio or on the record player, and starts typing out messages to Bernstein about our lives are in danger, we can't be heard, there may be bugging, there may be surveillance. Did all this really happen? Would it really have been worthwhile for the real-life Richard Nixon to have the real-life Woodward and Bernstein rubbed out? I tend to think not. Um, I think that would have just raised a, a whole lot more questions that would have been to Nixon's significant detriment. But the conspiracy is played up in the movie because it's more dramatic. It's more exciting. Um, so I just wish someone would give me an answer on why the burglars broke into Watergate or did the whole Watergate break-ins. It's never been explained. Um. You know, the, the thing that has always struck me is that it really was unnecessary. All of it was unnecessary because Nixon was going to get reelected unless something really extraordinary happened. 
uh, Nixon, um, all the president's men begins with um, Richard Nixon uh, coming back to the United States in triumph, starts at the, on June 1st, 1972. And Nixon, the real life, it starts with real life news footage of the real life Richard Nixon landing on the lawn outside the U.S. Capitol in a helicopter and then striding triumphantly into a joint session of Congress to talk about having gone to the Soviet Union to meet with the Soviet leaders and bring peace to the to the United States um, and peace to the world. So even after all this reporting that Woodward and Bernstein did about the Watergate break-in and cover-up, uh, Nixon still won 49 states. He won in a landslide. And the reason he he um, had to leave office really had nothing to do with Woodward and Bernstein at all, except for the fact that they did a really admirable job of keeping the story alive. So to go back to your story, why did the Watergate break-in happen? Um, the the um, explanation that I have heard was, well, these guys were paranoid. They thought that the Democrats had something on them. They were determined to stop the Democrats by any means necessary. And if they had just left things alone, um, they would have won anyway. And Nixon very likely would have served out his second term. And who knows what would have happened after that. Um, I have uh, friends on both sides of the aisle on that. People that they're all Nixon historians, but they either think that Nixon's a fool and they're very critical with their judgment on Nixon. And then there's kind of like Nixon wasn't a, as bad as you think. There's actually this that was going on. I, I kind of try and find the balance in it because like if they were looking for information, they broke into Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist office and they broke into Larry O'Brien's and had to go back because they bugged the wrong floor. It was bugging the roof above them. These are ex-CIA people, the burglars were. I've never seen somebody in, in amateur style. I mean, these guys, Howard Hunt, um, uh, McCord, all these people had huge issues with trying to assassinate Castro. Like they were involved in some deep cover stuff. So I, I wondered why they were so amateurish putting tape over a door and then just replacing it where a janitor can catch you. Where I go, did you guys intentionally get caught? Because how else would you get Nixon out of, I mean, if he was going to get reelected or whatever, you, whatever. I mean, that might be conspiratorial, but there's never been from, and this is the general consensus, there's not really a reason why they did this or why they did that. Was it the loan from Howard Hughes that he gave to Nixon for his political campaign that a lot of people don't know about? It's how his brother started up that burger chain, Nixon Burger. You ever hear about that? Vaguely, yeah. Don Nixon started a burger chain off the money from Howard Hughes, and this will be interesting for you as a uh, someone who's interested in journalism. You can look up these photos and it's Nixon in front of a banner and he's smiling in front of his brother's restaurant. And on the banner behind him, it says something in like weird, probably Vietnamese or some type of other language. And Nixon's laughing hilariously because he's like, it's communism. They're all making fun of communism. Well, the banner reads, ask him about the loan. And when they start at Nixon Burger, they hand out fortune cookies and they break it open and the fortune is another language they can't read. And it says, ask him about the loan. And it's, there's photos of this. It's crazy. But the story behind it was someone had from the counterculture had broken in and put this and did this whole thing. And Nixon thought it was a way of him celebrating coming to his brother's opening of his restaurant. 
And it wasn't. It was them trying to get him throw dirt at him a little bit. And it's to me, that was just interesting because that is like kind of reporting in its own, doing your own journalistic work, finding out that someone had these ties to a billionaire, getting funding from that. He even publicly apologized for it on his resignation thing um, because he didn't have any money. He didn't take money from donors to, for his political campaign, but he took the money from Howard Hughes. Sorry, that was an aside, but. Yeah, well, it. <laughs> it's interesting. There have been a lot of works that have been done about Watergate from different points of view. And I think it was on HBO Max last year. I may be wrong about the network, but it looks at Watergate from the, the plumber's point of view, the Howard Hunt and uh, G. Gordon Liddy point of view. And it starts Woody Harrelson. Yeah. I think it's called White House Plumbers. And it it's just right. turns and it turns the whole thing into farce, which I, I think it really was. And, and you can ask. Well, these guys were by the were CIA people. Surely they could not have been as amateurish as they seem to be. And I, I don't know. I tend to think that even people who are supposed professionals and sh really should know how to do this sort of surveillance operation in a professional way, if that's the right term, uh, not to tape the <laughs> lock shut. Um, I, I don't think that the fact that somebody's had extensive background in, in surveillance work or extensive background in anything, including journalism or including, uh, education, um, you know, that level of training doesn't necessarily immunize you against doing really stupid stuff. And I think that may well have been the case in, in this instance. What about the fact that they all had $100 bills in their pockets that were found on them, and they were all literally one serial code? I think all the serial code numbers were the same, which means, no, they were one off. So if you had 0001, the person had 0002, that means they were minted exactly right after each other. The statistical probability of that happening is like a billion to one. Yeah, I don't remember all the background about Watergate. There were a lot of weird things like like i'm that. saying that just there's things that don't have conclusive answers to i'm not trying to be super conspiratorial but whenever something like the prevailing 70s comes out as watergate and it's all synonymous with nixon i go he is not the only person doing bad you're telling me no other journalists found some other corruption on other individuals or did nixon just go down with the ship and i'm not a nixon apologist but i believe in someone needs a devil to burn and that's always how stories get reported well, that was also an argument that a lot of Nixon supporters made at the time. I mean, they were saying, like, well, we're not doing anything that LBJ didn't do. And maybe not. They're all bad. I hate them all. Yeah. Um, including recording. I mean, there have been recording in the White House, uh, in the Oval Office uh, for quite a while. Since Roosevelt. Yeah. Um, and there were recordings certainly during LBJ's administration. Um, uh, it, it still comes back to me like it, it was all unnecessary. It, it was all that, yes, there was conspiracy going on, but there was also uh, just plain stupidity and silliness going on that was unnecessary. I can resist, you know, since we're talking about conspiratorial thought, we're talking a couple of days before the Super Bowl. 
Um, I'm from Kansas City originally, so I'm a Kansas City Chiefs fan. And there's a conspiracy theory now that it's all been arranged that the Chiefs are going to win. And if they win, it's all going to be because it was all planned in advance. And it's a whole Travis Kelsey, Taylor Swift conspiracy to swing the election for Joe Biden and uh, swing it against Donald Trump. I'm so glad I'm stuck in the 70s and I can't get out of that. That's crazy shit. But, you know, people who are, are putting forward that conspiracy theory are like, well, look at all that. I mean, look at all this. It's Isn't it obvious? It's like, well, maybe not. Maybe, maybe so. But do you ever throw your hat completely out of the ring? Meaning, what does that mean? I find myself when I analyze topics like uh, something like Watergate or something from the past, I can't throw my hat out of the ring just because I don't have the proof to something or I don't have the thing to this. I won't disagree with it. Like, for instance, we'll take something more. I have a clear example on Kennedy assassination. Everyone who believes LBJ did it, which I don't care for. Um, they'll mention a party, Clint Merchantson's party, with all these big oil people. Hoover was there and all these people. It comes from a statement of a witness named Madeline Brown. She's a video you can watch on YouTube. She was LBJ's uh, girl, like, you know, like little love affair or whatever. And um, LBJ had mentioned that after today, those goddamn Kennedys will never bother me again at that party the night before the Dallas thing happened. Now... I have no other witnesses. I have nobody else. So I don't I don't throw it out, but I can't I, I need another source. You know, <laughs> Woodward and Bernstein, those were the only guys that had one source to corroborate everything that they were talking about, which has never happened. You're supposed to have a backup source for it. I need more proof for that. But if we start labeling, then what's real? Do we just label everything a conspiracy? You know, let's not forget that the Fred Hampton assassination was reported by uh Chicago Times and all the media outlets down there that Black Panthers fired on the Chicago police first over a hundred something shots. Turns out only one shot was from the Black Panther Party because that was because all these people had to videotape it and make their own documentary and put it up for people to see. Yeah, the, the Fred Hampton story is, is a really good example of the, the mainstream press uh, totally dropping the ball and totally buying the story that uh, the Chicago police and whoever else was behind that uh, were selling them. And you're right, that is a case where um, uh, uh, the truth did, didn't come out until, um, and I haven't, uh, it's, it's been a while since I've uh, looked into Fred Hampton's uh, murder, um, but uh, the, the Black Panthers certainly played a, a role, significant role in actually getting the truth out. And that is a good example of the, the press um, not uh, reporting the truth initially. As for the LBJ story that you mentioned, you know, the, the counter and I had not heard that before, but a counter argument would be, well, why would LBJ say this out loud? Uh, was he really that stupid or that he's drunk? Voiced, he's voiced it that, before. Or that boastful? Well, I'm on your side on that. I'm critical on that uh, Clint Merchantson part. I don't believe it at all. I don't think LBJ, I think he's part of the cover-up for sure. Um, but if you really analyze how many times LBJ did say some very off-color things about Kennedy, and that is recorded, um, not necessarily saying he's going to kill him, but saying 
someone needs to get rid of those Kennedys out of the White House or something like that. So, well, yeah, and it's, it was well documented that especially between LBJ and Bobby Kennedy, there were oh, uh, yeah. a whole lot of tensions and a whole lot of cultural differences, which I actually find really interesting. Those patrician uh, jet setting Kennedys from the East and then mm. LBJ from the ranch down in Texas. Big old Texan. Yeah, that that whole and and the whole broader uh, cultural clash within the Democratic Party at that time. I mean, this was still in the days when Texas actually had Democrats, <laughs> or I mean, Texas obviously still has Democrats, but uh, had uh, conservative Democrats um, uh, who were prominent on a national level, um, and the whole split within. Uh, the Texas Democratic Party that helped prompt uh, JFK to go down to Dallas to begin with. But since we, you know, since you raised the, the Kennedy assassination, I mean, the last time you and I spoke, we were talking about Revelo Oliver, who was a University of Illinois um, um, classics professor and white supremacist, anti-Semite, who published a um, his own conspiracy theory about the JFK assassination right after it happened. Um, he published um, an article in the John Birch Society magazine in February and March 1964. And part of his conspiracy theory was, well, there was a rehearsal for a funeral, a presidential funeral, a week before the assassination happened. And clearly that indicates that some people had uh, advanced knowledge that uh, JFK was going to be assassinated, that they were rehearsing his funeral in advance. And it's been documented. This is Revelo Oliver's argument. Well, Revelo Oliver got uh, interviewed by the Warren Commission um, about his charges. And it turned out that there was a rehearsal for a presidential funeral. He, he was absolutely right. It had been reported in the press, but it was for Herbert Hoover because Herbert Hoover was then something like 90 years old and he was in failing health. Uh, the Hoover hung on for a few more months, but that was who the, the rehearsal was for and nothing to do with JFK whatsoever. And it raised the question of like, why would anyone with advanced knowledge of the JFK assassination be so stupid as to actually stage a rehearsal for his funeral out in the open where everybody could see it the week before he was assassinated. I don't know. Why would people be so stupid to break into a building and then put tape on a door? Yeah, and I guess that's the counter argument. And as I said, people do do stupid things. So it's it's maybe, interesting. Maybe it was rehearsed. I I personally I, no, I don't. I don't know. It's not not at all. Um that, that I wouldn't even entertain that. Um there is just interesting things. If you've ever read the Warren Commission. There is some stuff Never in there. Never the whole thing cover to cover, but I dipped into it, yeah. It's got some interesting stuff that as an investigative person, I'd be like, why didn't you pursue that? Why didn't you pursue a null shooter? Why didn't you pursue any of these leads where they had witnesses that could have stepped forward and did give a testimony, but it was never, it just ends there. There's small little paragraphs of things. Even the connections with the Dallas Police Department and Jack Ruby. What is it? Henry Wade made a, conference and said that none of my police officers maybe three or four only know jack ruby and then they're all giving statements to the warren commission one dude twisted his ankle ice skating with jack ruby i swear to you he was a detective his name's cody 
Uh, I forgot his last name, but that's in the Warren Commission. They got that in there. So there's a lie there. But then you just kind of look at it deeper, like what is actual truth? What can I base in fact? And then that's where people run off with their own. Because again, when you're analyzing an event with so many political figures, that's why there's so many theories. And that's what makes it difficult because I believe everyone has brought some reasonable weight to the argument. But I, I think everybody ends up uncovering like, oh, he was sleeping with Marilyn Monroe. It's like, well, how did the hell did you find that? And it was like, well, I went down this rabbit hole and this one, it led me there. Well, it's true. He did sleep with Marilyn Monroe. That's not a lie. I think everyone knows that now, but it's just interesting to see how much people with their own mindset, how much do you believe that their experience in life cultivates their ideas and understandings of what they're going to research into? I mean, there's researchers on every single topic you can possibly think of, and they all have, we talked about Watergate, independent theories. Jeff Shepard, who defended Nixon at Watergate, he was there during the Watergate trial. I've had him on the show. That man's got information in his head I could not even imagine. But then I got the other side telling me that, you know, this is all corrupt and it's all lies and it's all this and the Republicans, Democrats, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, you know, conspiracy theories, and it's also this way in popular culture and movies, you know, it's, it's a way of trying to make sense of things that are senseless um or seemingly senseless um it's a way of um, i think reassuring ourselves that there is some there was some plan behind something that otherwise can seem totally random i i mentioned revelo oliver who i'm convinced was a nutcase and a really unhappy nasty human being i was just rereading something that he wrote where he italicized the sentence Optimism is cowardice. I mean, how can you live your life where you um, have essentially uh, convinced yourself that any sort of hope or anything is an act of cowardice and something that should be summarily rejected? But he raised questions in his own conspiracy theory about the JFK assassination that lots of other people have raised, and rightfully so. Why did the motorcade get routed past the Texas School Book Depository? Why did they choose that particular route? Was there more than one shooter at Kennedy? Uh, did Oswald and Ruby know each other? Um, how could the Warren Commission possibly be um, entrusted to uncover the truth when clearly they had um, their own? Uh, Why did Gerald Ford move a back wound up six inches? That's crazy. Did you ever hear about that? But no, but the History I, Channel just did a whole series on it. But yeah, Gerald Ford in a report had edited the back wound of Kennedy and moved it to the back of the neck. It, you see photos of it online. There's a hole in Kennedy's back. Well, he moved it up six inches. And the History Channel reported on it. I was like, hey, that's a win. I've never seen them report anything like that before. And the fact of the matter is, I unless there is some some proof that's going to clear all this up buried somewhere in one of these rabbit holes that somebody is somehow all these decades later going to be able to, to pull up. I don't think we're ever going to definitively know the truth. Um, and it's also the case with Watergate and looking at it back to the lens of pop culture and its its portrayal of journalism and a movie like Well, the President's Men, 
All the President's Men tells a fairly wrapped up story that purports to give the whole story behind Watergate. Not the whole story, because it's a two hour long movie and there are so many different threads to Watergate that the the screenwriter, William Goldman, and director Ellen J. Pakula and Robert Redford, who had a big role in, in shaping that movie, they all decided we're only going to tell certain aspects of the story. We're not going to try to tell the whole thing. But the story they tell still pretty much conclusively says, you know, Nixon uh, and the Nixon White House uh, I mean, were spying on the Democrats because they were paranoid. They were just trying to get dirt on the Democrats to reinsure Nixon's uh, re-inauguration, re-election re-inauguration. And Woodward and Bernstein uncovered a lot of the details of this cover-up of these uh, covert operations. And eventually that brought down Richard Nixon. And there have been a whole lot of other stories, some comical, like the White House plumbers story that came out recently with Woody Harrelson, um, a movie, another comic movie where Will Ferrell plays Woodward called Dick, came out in 1999. That's a hilarious movie that's well worth watching. Uh, a movie that came out a few years ago where Liam Neeson bringing, hey. his, whole, bringing his whole Liam Neeson persona to Mark Felt, this number two guy in the Jeez. FBI, um, told from his perspective where again, it's just one guy has deep throat. It it it's, it takes up that. Mark Felt's not Irish. What is Liam Neeson doing? <laughs> and you know, because Liam Neeson is Mark Felt. Mark Felt comes across really heroic, really strong, really macho, and um, really uh, a good guy. It, you know, not one hundred percent pure, but the movie implies that. Well, he was doing this because he was really concerned about the future of the country. So that's that's a different take, his own take. Um, I, I don't think Neeson wrote or directed the movie, but that's a different take. It's certainly from all the president's men. Uh, there's a novel called Watergate written by, I believe, a guy named Thomas Mallon, um, who... Um, is talking about Pat Nixon, uh, the, the first lady, Nixon's wife, and extramarital affairs she was supposedly having and trying to tell Watergate from her perspective. And it's interesting because the guy who wrote this book was saying, like, it's all historical fiction. And whenever you're talking about historical fiction, you need to remember that the um, noun trumps the adjective. Uh, the modifier is historical, but the noun, the most important thing to remember, is fiction. At heart, it's just a story about what happened. It's a story to try to make sense in a way that's dramatically compelling and that um, it, that will make us think more about our, our shared past. It's rooted in historical fact, but it's at heart fiction. That's what Mallon wrote about his novel. And to a degree, uh, All the President's Men is historical fiction, although rooted in historical fact. This Mark Felt movie, it's actually called something like Mark, Mark Felt, the, the Man Who Brought Down the White House um, with Liam Neeson is fiction. 
Uh, I got to read that book. That book sounds really good about his wife. Because that's the one thing with Nixon, no sexual scandal. But if you listen to that man's speeches, there's something off. Like he's he, his sexual stuff comes out in his voice. He was talking about Ted Kennedy or somebody, and he was like, he's very astute, very posturous, very erect. And I was like, sir, I, this is in every one of his speeches. He's just letting it go in his words. And I'm like, you don't say those. He was like, the moist counterculture. I was like, why are you saying that to put that on the counterculture? And how do you make sense of Richard Nixon? People, how do I? Oh. I mean, how does anybody make sense of this guy? Because clearly he was brilliant in, in a lot of ways. I mean, clearly he was super smart. He said some things towards the ending of his, like, I know a lot of people give him criticism for being an idiot and all this type of stuff. I listened to some of his stuff when I was making clips. I was like, I'm not disagreeing with what he's saying. Like, he's very concerned about the drug culture that's going on there. But he was really kind of trying to break it down, like talking about Americans and really trying to rise up the people. And one of the speeches that I was listening to, and I was like, I, this is not the guy I've been told about, really, or the one history really reflects on. Where it, it, I mean, it makes me analyze everybody. I mean, I was going to ask you this, but what president have you had a change of perspective on? And I'll just give an example. Truman. I don't like Truman in the beginning. I think he's a bit of a, a boy scout. I don't really appreciate um, more. I'm probably more libertarian in my beliefs, uh, but he said something that kind of changed my perspective. And it happened when Dag Hammarskjöld died. You can look this up. And this is another thing that kind of leads into reporting. But when he, when he died, he said to the press at a press conference, he says he was on the verge of getting something done when they killed him. Notice how I said they killed him. That's a quote from Truman, and no press followed up on that when they asked about Dag Hammarskjöld's death. And then he wrote a thing for the Washington Post about the CIA. He talked about how he believed that their mission was de detracted from what it was originally intended to be, and it needed to be reined in. And that was a big concern for Alan Dulles, who was in charge of the CIA at the time, which to me, that... I mean, first time besides Eisenhower, we ever heard of like a military industrial complex or a deep state type mentality, which is just interesting to me that they would leave these little nuggets out there for whether conspiracy peers, people want to run off with it or whether someone wants to kind of take it and hear the words from it, at least. Well, you know, to, in terms of how my perspective has changed on presidency, I, I, I said that Nixon was brilliant. I meant that Nixon clearly was very, very smart in a lot of cases. And he also did some really, really stupid, destructive stuff. And I think my view of a lot of these historical figures has just gotten more complicated over time, uh, more complex. Uh, Truman, for example, I, I, I'm from Kansas City originally. And, you know, I mentioned the fact that I root for the Chiefs. And Growing up, I mean, we always liked uh, Truman because he was from the Kansas City area. He's from Independence, which is right next door to Kansas City. But we can look at him from the perspective of today. He made some really historically controversial decisions. He signed off on the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, and that's a whole other subject, um, which uh, has very vigorous defenders and very vigorous critics. Um, he said some pretty racist stuff, if I remembered, um, which was a product of his times and his upbringing. 
but he's also the guy who desegregated the military, which was something that was way overdue. Um, and he also, whatever his personal views may have been, he supported certain civil rights initiatives, even though they only went so far. And he recognized Israel, which at the time, even though it's controversial now, but at the time that was never been done before. He uh, supported national health insurance, which is something that got blown up. Uh, but I didn't like him in Eisenhower, though. He came off like an asshole. I was like, damn, man, he's making fun of Oppenheimer. And uh, yeah, yeah, uh, that that's something else that these uh, historical figures figures keep making cameos in historical dramas. <laughs> yeah. um, Eisenhower is a really interesting figure, um, a Republican, but in a lot of ways, maybe a nominal Republican, somebody who um, was very conservative in some respects, but we might consider, uh, consider him to be much more liberal in other respects. Uh, the whole legacy of Kennedy, and uh, if Kennedy had not been assassinated, well, what he would have done or not have done with Vietnam. Um, supporters have you know, very passionately said he never would have led us down the path that I'd like to think. So, I'd like to think so, but he was putting more yeah. visors in. You kind of can't toss that out. He was a cold warrior, um, of, as most politicians were of that generation. And it's the kind of thing like, well, we just don't know, so we can impose our own interpretation on it. It kind of goes back to conspiracy theories, because we cannot get to the absolute truth of what happened, necessarily. Um, it leaves much more room for our own interpretation. What if, what if JFK had lived? What if Nixon's, what if Watergate had never happened and Nixon had served out his term? What might that the consequences had been? Uh, and, and we just don't know uh, what might happen. What if COVID had never happened? Uh, and what would have the implications been for the 2020 U.S. presidential election? Zoom would be broke as shit, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Nobody would have ever heard the name. Yeah, and, and um, higher education would have education generally would have ground to a halt. Although some people would argue that it was significantly diminished anyway. I have so many friends now that are homeschooling their kids. I'm like, oh, I didn't know this was a normal thing. Now, I was lucky in that I had retired before the pandemic started, so I've never actually had to try to teach online, um, and that's something that I consider myself fortunate with because I think. Face-to-face -face instruction is, is, is in face-to-face -face conversation. Although we're having a face-to-face -face conversation now, um, and, and Zoom does enable these sorts of discussions, whereby we didn't have that kind of um, uh, opportunity before. Um, still, though, it's it, it, it is. Let's go grab a beer one time. Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> If it weren't early in the morning, we could do that. Uh, uh, that's early where you are. I've been up since 4 p.m. yesterday. Yeah, well, uh, so the, the, all of these what-ifs leave the door open to to, to to our own takes on things, which make for good conversation. Uh, we do have to try to be careful by we. I'm just talking about all of us. And we try not to let our interpretations or our theories go too far off into the ether. 
And also, this is the other thing that I that I, I, I think that there is a certain benefit into constructive complication, into understanding that things are complicated and we're not necessarily ever going to come to a clear and simple explanation of all historical phenomena. And that's okay. It's okay to, to view historical figures as being more complex than the simple heroes or the simple scoundrels that uh, pop culture often tries to impose on historical figures and on people generally. Um, that that it's, it's good to have our understandings complicated uh, without sacrificing critical judgment, without, without uh, realizing that real life conspiracies do exist, but also understanding that conspiracies are not always as all-encompassing, as all-carefully organized, as all-carefully concealed as they, as some proponents say they are. Because when, er when conspiratorial thinking dominates everything and paranoia leads to everything, that can lead to some serious consequences where people are just predis predisposed to say, all mainstream media is garbage. It's all lying. It's all controlled. It's all suppressed. You can't trust anything that you read except for certain non-mainstream ideas, if you want to call them that, that you're predisposed to believe, that anyone may be predisposed to believe. Again, life's more complicated than that, and I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. I just like talking about it. That's about it. I just like talking about it. Uh, no, it, it, is, it is fun to talk about. We should talk about it because talking about it sharpens our own perceptions, hopefully, and gives us stuff to think about and, and makes us more thoughtful and more aware of our history and different shades of our history, darker corners of our history that are worth uh, exploring. And rabbit holes can be fun. Um, going online, going to something like newspapers.com to look up a historical subject. Um, you're making a face. Yeah, I'm making a face. I've never heard of that site before. It sounds it's expensive. Fake. It's ex it's expensive. That's that's a downside. But what it what it gives you access to are all these historical newspapers, and it's searchable. Oh. So you can type in something like Revelo Oliver, or you can type in any name. And you'll come up with matches from newspapers all over the country, in some cases all over the world, from dating back to the 19th century, that will let you research subjects. So people use it to research their own family backgrounds. Um, I've used it to write my books about, you know, touching on Revelo Oliver academic freedom, about uh, Kansas City, Oakland sports history, about journalism in the movies. Um, but they're definite rabbit holes because once you open up these newspapers, it's like a massive microfilm database. Uh, once you open it up and you start seeing the stories alongside alongside what you were originally researching, it's like, oh, that's interesting. And that story over there is interesting. And if I scroll down, man, that's I never knew that before. And what was this person thinking? And then it's kind of like, oh, I got to research that. And before you know it, it's 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 14 hours later and your day is shot and you haven't figured out anything more about the subject that you were originally researching. 
that it gives you time. It's fascinating. It gives you tons of stuff to think about. And then it's fun to talk about too. Um, so yeah, I, I hear you. It is fun to talk about. And the what ifs, what if uh, so-and-so was involved behind this murder? We haven't really thought about that. And why was this person doing what they did? What they, why, why were they so stupid? They couldn't have been that dumb. Um, and if this hadn't happened, what it, what could have happened? All that stuff, it, it, you know, we're, we're never going to shut off conversation about that. And, and we shouldn't because it's the way we make sense of our lives and our past and our futures. Well, Matt, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. Uh, is there a place where people can find any of your links if you have any? I can link it all in the description, but if you know any of your social media handles you'd like to promote? Yeah, my social media presence is pretty um, modest. And, you know, that that's a whole other subject that we talk about is Twitter slash X and so forth. I am there, but uh, not much there. The best place would be just to type in a search window, Matthew, uh, two T's, Ehrlich, E-H-R-L-I-C-H, University of Illinois. And I'm at the College of Media website. There's a little bit about me still there, even though I'm retired. Uh, some links to some uh, some stuff that I've written and conversations that I've had online about some of my research. Um, and, and that's probably the best place to start if anybody's interested. I'll make sure I link those in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting with you again. Thanks, Thanks everybody. Robbie. For it's a lot of fun. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank. Stay tuned for next episode.